My name is Sarah, and I'm a loyal listener of the When Dating Hurts podcast. Every single episode, I learn something new, and I'm amazed time and time again by the strength of each survivor. The When Dating Hurts podcast has so much great advice. It really highlights several of the early warning signs so that you can get out before it's too late. Even if you're a domestic abuse survivor like myself, it's still a good idea to keep yourself educated about the red flags of an abusive person. I have gladly recommended the When Dating Hurts podcast to all of my girlfriends. The When Dating Hurts podcast continues to grow in popularity. The more who listen, the more who will know the realities of dating and domestic violence. In the meantime, the When Dating Hurts book, in paperback, ebook, and audiobook, is being purchased and read by concerned parents, teachers, victims, and survivors, and of course, those who are currently dating. Education leads to empowerment. That way, if a potential abuser is targeting you or someone you care about, you will know how to detect it and how to break free and stay safe. Up next, another survivor story to illustrate how an innocent person can become manipulated and trapped in abusive relationships. We pick up from part one with Annie letting us in on Carmine's family. Is this the large family she never had growing up? If so, how might she fit in? Here is Annie. His family, I was kind of, I was kind of obsessed with it. Like not them specifically, but this idea of the giant Italian family. So coming from lonely, only child, not having that question, having that inborn question of like, what is a family like? I really wanted to, I, I dove in. I wanted to know all about it. And I found out some really dark stuff. I found out that basically his mother enabled his hypersexuality yeah, in a way that I found really messed up. He took me downstairs to show me some drawings he had done as a teenager or whatever. They were pornographic anime drawings done with the highest amount of detail. They were nasty. And his mother kept him. So proud of what her son did? I guess. I really was super confused by that. There was also like a weird openness where the men would talk about, they would talk about their sex lives openly and like send pictures. And I, that's another thing too. It'd be blowing up my phone all the time and sending me nasty pictures. I've heard other people in interviews say the same thing. Like that means like he's really interested in me. He's really into me. Like, isn't that good? Yeah. Look at all the things he's sharing. Yeah. So we're getting to the end of this. So that relationship, how long did that one run? Would you say? That was a uh, two years, I believe. Okay. Um, the end of it was, I still lived at the, the loft, the artist loft. We were in my room. My memory's a little foggy on on exactly what what it was that went down. 
it could have been one of those like, well, if you don't do this sex thing for me, then, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. But I had had enough and I told him to get out. I said, get out of my house. Get out. This is it. And I walked down this hallway. So the way that it was set up was like big open space. And then there's a little hallway and then all these bedrooms come off of it. Mm -hmm. And mine was at the very end of the hallway. So I walked down the hallway. There's a door at the end. I'm essentially like, you've been told to get out and I'm, I'm leading you out. Here's the door. But at that point, he puts hands on me. He pulls me, there's a door, like, this stuff happens so fast. So it's like, there's a, I used the door to like, try to separate myself from him, but he had pulled me, my chest and like my shirt to pull me back inside to get me, both of us back in the room. That was the first time that somebody had put hands on me. And that was like, well, now I know that that's abuse. This is how uneducated I was about all of these things. This happens like this sometimes. Up until the time that somebody's physically manhandling you, I guess we could call it. Yeah, It's like exactly. it didn't really add up to violence or abuse. Up until then, it's just we don't get along or this is uncomfortable, but it's not yeah. what this is. And, the, and now you had exactly. crossed over. Yeah. So now I knew. But he wouldn't leave. So I went, I ran out onto the fire escape and like cowered in a corner in the dark. And I was just hoping he would leave. But he didn't. He found me on the fire escape and gave me every excuse in the book as to why he should stay. One of them included, but it's such a long way for me to get back to my place. And I said, that's bullshit. We ride bikes all the time to and from there. It's 10 minutes. Not buying it. Mm -hmm. You got to go. I specifically remember that one. But I also remember being cornered. I still remember and feel that in my body. Somehow he tries to like speak to my one of the roommates. And this was the guy who lived in the room across the end of the hallway from me. He he's like, what do I do? She told me to leave. And he said, I'll never forget this either. He said, hey, man, she asked you to leave. That means you have to leave. Simply put. Yeah, I was. It's interesting. I didn't expect anybody to care. And it meant a lot to me. So I, I break up with this guy. People don't understand. They're like, but he, oh, that guy, he's so fun. Oh my God, I love that guy. Oh my God, we're still friends actually, and he's doing great. I don't know if any of you have noticed, I'm tiny, I'm very skinny, and my hair is beginning to fall out. And I had, I had acne like really severe because like these chemicals, like the, the cortisol or what, I mean, what it feels like in my body is knives. There's knives in my gut and there's needles in my face. It's shame. It's just constant shame and fear. And so I, I like, there goes the appetite. 
if that's your if that's your normal. And people also during that time told me I looked great. Oh, they told you you looked great. Because skinny. Skinny's in vogue. Yeah. I was just like, I cannot believe that at this time in my life where I feel the worst that I've felt so far, people are telling me how great I look. That's fucked up. Like I cut off contact after that. He couldn't understand the fact that like somebody wouldn't talk to an ex anymore. Can't we just be friends? Yeah, but I was like, uh, no, dude, you're dangerous. And I was, I was, I had PTSD from that shit, man. But he wanted to figure if he could weasel his way back to some kind of relationship. That's the idea. I guess well, certainly. probably to make himself feel better about himself. And also it's a, it's an object. Like I remember the family would say, so when are we getting Carmine number six? Oh no. Don't you mean, how are you, Annie? That's all I represent to you as a baby maker. It was, it was that it felt that way. And it felt like, it felt like property and ownership versus anything else. Yes. That's, that's your glimpse of family. With those people. Correct. And then, oh, brother's a cop too. Brother's a cop. So you had, this guy had, you know, the thing in the wallet that's like, hey, you know, if I ever get in trouble. Check my badge. Yeah, that's a thing. That was the first time I learned about that. The family, family of the officer getting just that free pass. Right. Special treatment. Make bad things go away. If you need a ticket fixed or something, call me up. Yeah. It just all of that stuff like stood out to me and I was like, this is a bad situation that absolutely would get worse if I don't do something. No, if you don't bail out. So what do you do now? Carmine's in the rearview mirror and you're getting distance from him. What do you do now? This is when Oh, there was like a in between I moved. I moved out from the loft. I moved in with to the next apartment with a couple of friends that I had lived with there. One of them was the first drummer of my band, which is really cool. In that in-between time, there was another guy that I, he's not on the list, but it was bad. Sometimes it happens. uh, I feel like it's common in New York for people to overstay their welcome and then somehow take claim to your place and move in without officially being invited to move in. That was something that happened. And so that that blew up that whole living situation. But I remained there and I became like the house mom. It became my three bedroom to figure out how to keep and sublet. Or at least that's that's the I couldn't envision moving again. Cause I'd moved I'd moved almost every year for a long, long time. So I thought, I just want to stay somewhere. That's a, that's gonna, it's a through line in my, in my story. Yeah, just, God, can I just stay here? But I was, I was terrified of all that responsibility. But having that, figuring that out, gave me an opportunity to get help, to start getting help, to have my, my own space. I'm in charge of this. I make the rules. You go through me, I'll deal with the landlords, all of that. It was like, okay, I have my safe place now. This was a period of a bottom, a 
you know, in, in 12 step, they call it reaching a bottom. And this is when I reached out for help. Oh, wait, sorry, I skipped one. I skipped number three. Asking for help number three was during this time, I sought out a psychiatrist who was both. He did like psychotherapy and could prescribe. And I said to him, I'm not ready for medication. I first really want to talk. There's a lot of things I don't understand. I don't understand why these things have happened to me or why this person, this, that, and the other. I need to talk. But instead of listening to me and respecting that, he prescribed Cymbalta right away. It's widely effective. It's a common SSRI. Mm-hmm. But I guess I was in a, a minority group where I had a toxic reaction to the drug. Oh. And so I was I was absolutely terrified to try any medication after that. It was really scary. I was up like all night. I felt like my body was on fire. Uh, I had my hand on the on the phone to call 911 in case my heart stopped. Uh, and I called the so I called the psychiatrist the next day and I said this is what happened. It was terrible. He's like, "Oh, you probably don't have the right dosage." I was like, "That is the wrong answer." I am never talking to you again. And I'll be damned if I try this again. It was too scary. So that was number three. All right, cut to now. I'm living in my, I have a safe, my safe place. I'm in this bottom. And I'm like, I got one more in me. I got one more ask. And if I can't find help this time, I'm done. And this is a dark, a dark part of, of depression. They called it heard it called a later later on a different therapist said passive suicide so I, I mentioned I was a bike commuter at this time I started biking through the city through New York City stopped wearing a helmet and I stopped paying attention to traffic lights and I thought to myself secretly this was my secret if something happens to me it will look like an accident and nobody will know that I wanted it to happen. Mm -hmm. You're riding the bike through, like you're in Manhattan at this time? Yeah, all over. Death by traffic. Yeah. So I have to say, yeah, it was was living a death wish. Mm -hmm. I never want anybody to feel that way. I agree with that. Yeah, that was awful. And I want to say, just in a quick aside, that I've had so many close calls and I think all these things I've been through, how I'm still here, there's no reason for it. There's no reason why some people don't make it and I did, but I'm grateful every day. Good. I'm glad to hear that. You know, and this, and my story continues. So I asked for help again. I started listening to Dharma talks. I start getting into Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Religion never worked for me. We'll remember that from earlier. So what I liked about what I was hearing in Buddhism was that it was a, a wisdom tradition and that it was very personal. I found a group in New York City called Dharma Punks with an X. And uh, the guy who runs it, his name is Josh Corda. He's written a book several years ago. I recommend looking for anybody who's curious, look up 
Dharma punks and Josh Corda. Mm-hmm. Meeting him saved saved my life, to be honest. To be frank, I saw I listened to some talks. I s- looked at the website. I saw that he was open to one-on-one mentoring. So I reached out and he messaged me back and said, why don't you come talk to me? And it turned out that he lived a six minute walk from my door. Oh, I walked to his place, sat down with him in his backyard and I explained to him where I was at. I believed at this time that the soul was an entity, a finite entity that it was like a sheet. And, you know, you hear these rock songs, there's a hole in my soul, you know, that kind of crap. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's a good rhyme. But I believed it. And I thought this sheet of a soul that I have is threadbare, and pretty soon there's going to be nothing left. That's a very dangerous belief. So that very first meeting he straightened me out and he said, well, in the spiritual community, we don't consider it like that. And he, he gave me a new picture. Mm. He said like, it's actually something that's infinite. It has no beginning or end. I can't even remember what exactly it was he said, but that was very important. He also then told me about 12 step. He mentioned Al-Anon to me. He said, it sounds like, your life has been affected by by alcoholism because uh, yeah, I, I had become a night person. Uh, I had a, my day life and my night life. So I had my job at the agency during the day. And then at night I would go to shows and just be with metal people. And are you drinking heavily during this? I did. Yeah, I did. There was a period where I was like, am I an alcoholic? But my, my stuff didn't check out. I looked at all the questions and they didn't, it wasn't the right fit, but I, it seemed like everybody who I would become close to, I would wind up drinking to keep up with them. I started to recognize which end of that I was on and sort through it. Going to those meetings then opened me up to the ACOA meetings. And that's where I did major healing. I did all of the steps. And that, again, is the program for adult children of alcoholism and family dysfunction. Step by step, there's 12 of them. And by the end, you will have a a firm understanding of where you came from, why. You'll have the why behind things that you, you need to heal, where they came from, what they manifested in your life, and how to begin to heal those things. And then you know, at the end, you help others. During that time, I also was in a relationship with somebody who is supportive. And that person now is one of my best friends and creative collaborators to this day. We talk almost every day. So this is now leading into relationship number two. So in this healing period, I go back to Wisconsin. Somebody from my past comes back into my life. This is somebody from from high school or like middle high school where like when I would sneak out, sometimes I'd go to like meet him and we would make out. Oh, how cute. And it seemed like I wrote this side note, uh, moving, moving far from where you grew up 
can create this nostalgia for home and kind of a romantic view of it. There's like a FOMO in it, sort of like a what if, what if I had stayed, what would my life be like? Instead, I chose this other difficult path and like the Midwest and specifically can seem really comfy and nice compared to New York City, especially if you are struggling there. Mm -hmm. So I get back to GB. There's this, there's this person from my, my past. His name is Eric. And this is, this is 2017. Meeting this guy again, hit on, it just hits on all my broken spots. They're big feelings, big ideas, amplified sense of meaning. There must be something important here because this person was in my life. I always had a big question mark about what being with them. I remember feeling proud of him. He'd had a rough go and now he was ready to branch out. Again, like looking at people and wanting to know their healing story and wanting it to be like mine and wanting to be mutually helpful to each other. Mm -hmm. That was like my, my dream. So he's very much a townie. And uh, at this time he was saying, oh, I'm, I'm ready to leave Green Bay. I was like, you? Wow. I was very impressed by this. We both were like, what about Portland? Oh yeah. I was kind of into Portland. Like seems like a really great place. So I said, well, let's go there. Let's go there for like a week and play house and see how it is. See how we like it. See how we like each other. And just, just see. It didn't work out. It didn't feel as good as you thought it would. No, it did not. Yeah, this was a long, a long time ago. And, and so much happened like after that, that the specifics of it are even still fuzzy to me. The main part is that I moved on and he didn't. So then, so that's 2017. Then the mm-hmm. years after this are like, pretty good and productive. I did a lot with my music and my band and had a good community, great people that I still still am connected with. I'm sure you've heard of a thing called COVID. Yes, I think I saw it on, on TV. There was something there was something <laughs> about it. Yes. <laughs> so COVID hits hard. November 2020, everybody left. Mass exodus from New York. My roommates left. I was I had a really good situation with with the two roommates, uh, one went back to Italy. The other one went to, I think, Philly for grad school. And that, you know, that was my, the people in my safe place. They were gone. My bandmates moved. One moved to Connecticut. The other one moved to Texas. My work office closed. Uh, our music producer moved. Yeah, everybody, everybody had losses. Everything closed. And in New York City, your life became very small, very limited to what was available on your block. And for me, there was, it was dive bar row, man. There were six, I think six bars on my block alone. I, I never wanted to use dating apps, but I did at this time as a way to remain social. Are you in New York at this time or are you back yeah. in Wisconsin? Yeah. The Wisconsin trip was very quick. I never, I, yeah, ultimately I did not want to leave Brooklyn. I did not want to leave that life. Had the question at the time. I answered the question for myself. I went back. Okay. So during COVID dating apps, dating was sad. Everybody was sad. 
myself and I'm sure lots of other people felt disposable and desperate. I I would meet people and and get attached to them and think like, well, why can't we just be friends? Friends is better. So I would spend time with a few friends, a few friends who were left, um, people who were from there, usually, like New Jersey or somewhere in Brooklyn. And I spent a lot of time with a man who did not love me. This is number two. This is where like, oh, my story is very, things weave in and out. I called it a dating violence and abuse, a personal history. So Eric had to be mentioned because that part is relevant to the the later part. So we're in COVID. Life is tiny. Everyone's sad. I meet a friend of a friend and just start hooking up. And of course, I become attached because I did. I needed I needed that. I needed closeness. And we all did. Nobody wanted to it was, with this person specifically, it was come closer so I can push you away. Yeah, there was a bit of manipulation in that. But by the end of it, this was it was a dark time. Being with this person was not like happy times. It was let's get obliterated and and hook up and move on with life as usual. Nobody was happy. I ended that by saying, I would date you if you wanted to. But if you don't want to, I'm going to continue on my path. I'm going to continue meeting new people and living my life. Just letting you know. Essentially, this is your moment. So this thing has to have, uh, I mean, this has to be a relationship or it will be no relationship. Yeah. This is... uh, Sounds fair. We will establish whether or not there is a commitment. And after that, you know, he said no. There was no commitment. So I said, okay, at least we're on the same page. See ya. But I was also bummed. Mm -hmm. I had, you know, sort of fallen for this person in, in these circumstances. And it was just, it was just a hard time all around. So there was one day... I finished my work and I just felt emotionally spent. And I thought, all right, I'm going to go downstairs across the street to this dive bar, beer in a shot, and then I'm going to go to sleep. That's it. It was just like, it was just a day like that. Things were not merry. All was not well. That night, if I hadn't gone out there, I think of this, like if I hadn't have gone out there, man. I call this section of my outline, enter the street pirate. Oh. This person is named Gabriel. We will call him street pirate because he looked like if Jack Sparrow was in a motorcycle gang. And uh, thanks a lot, movies and TV. You've like sold me this image for so long. And now it's like in front of me and I have all these feelings. Ugh. I'm like toast. So the street pirate. Okay. You have all these feelings. I mean, of attraction, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Long hair, this whole, this whole look. I had no, I wasn't even looking at him until he was right in front of me and said, can I buy you a drink? Which that's common. They can smell you. Yes. I, I was no makeup. 
almost in pajamas, basically. And I was thinking about the dude who did not love me. I was just contemplating. Yes. And getting ready to turn in. So, Street Pirate, can I buy you a drink? Sure. Mm -hmm. Then, I don't know, we just hung out the rest of the night. He was very charismatic is a strange term to use. But there was charisma to me. There was something that was working for me, almost, you know, designed to work for me. It was all by design, man. And I I knew, a part of me consciously knew that this wasn't good. This is the conclusion to part two with Annie. Be looking for part three on the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's Bill Mitchell at whendatinghurts.com.